2: I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Natasha Leone's Poker Face Edition. It's Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. On today's show, Ryan Johnson and Natasha Leone, he of Knives Out, she of Russian Doll, have teamed up to create Poker Face, a serial crime dramedy. Kind of in the Colombo mode, we'll discuss. It's on Peacock. And then our march to the Oscars continues. We discuss All Quiet on the Western Front, which has been showered with nominations, nine in all, including Best Picture. It's a German-language version of the classic novel detailing the brutalities of World War I. And finally, oh, capitalism, you've done it again. We discuss a Grub Street article about the latest stroke of capitalist genius for selling authenticity to yuppies, known as the shoppy shop. Joining me today is uh, Julia Turner. She's the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia.
3: Hello. Hello, Steve.
2: Hello. And uh, of course, Dana Stevens sitting across from me is the uh, film critic for Slate. Though, Dana, I notice you're kind of two timing a little bit on the cinema. You're writing about the television.
0: <laughs> That's true. We'll talk about that this week. But this is the fallow season for movies, is why. So, you know, I'm sort of yeah. stretching a little bit to write about some interesting and sometimes movie related television projects.
2: Yeah. Well, lucky us, right? The Pocrophy piece was great. Let's start there. Ryan Johnson has scored two. Huge hits with Knives Out and its sequel, Glass Onion. Natasha Lyonne, meanwhile, made really kind of an extraordinary comeback with the Netflix TV show Russian Doll a few years ago. The two have now teamed up for Poker Face on Peacock. Uh, It's kind of like an anti-premium streaming series in a way. It's uh, not a bingeable set of 10 episodes that adds up to a single novelistic story arc but it's really more of an old-fashioned case of the week tv show with a Columbo or you know even murder she wrote vibe Leon plays charlie kale a casino employee with an astonishing gift she can tell when people are lying which she is now going to use now that she's on the lamb to solve murders week by week this is a scene from episode three where she catches someone telling a little white lie about paprika let's listen
1: paprika paprika yeah it's just this uh, stupid little thing that's been bugging me because uh mostly when people lie it's for some dumb who cares reason which i'm sure this is so last night in the kitchen you said you didn't know where the paprika was but y- you did know so why were you lying about the paprika It was hectic. There was a lot going on, and I wanted Beto to find it. To find it? (laughs) Look, Charlie, I like you. And if Taffy really is who you say he is, then, well, he must be very dangerous. For your own safety, I think your best move is to hit the road. Get a fresh start.
2: Something tells me she may not hit the road and get a fresh start in that episode. Dana, I loved your piece about this show. You seem to have connected with it. It's kind of great to have, I mean, Natasha Leone in anything, but to have her in her own distinctive, really wonderful way, channeling Peter Falk from the Columbo heyday. Pretty freaking great. What'd you make of it?
0: Yeah. I mean, this show just completely hit the spot for me. I'm not going to make any big argument for it as the, the future of television or, you know, anything that's kind of even reinventing the wheel as far as this crime of the week procedural goes. But we just don't have any shows like this right now. And I mean, as I think I've said at this point ad nauseum on this show, I just sometimes like get really over the the episodic, deep mythology kind of TV that gives you a cliffhanger every single week. It's, there's something really satisfying about individual episodes being tied up in a bundle. And you can watch them in any order, which you really can with this show. Once you've seen the pilot that, you know, sets out the premise that you just discussed, you, you really could just mix them up because it's just the same adventure happening over and over again. That makes it not the best show for binging because it is the same formula over and over again. But it does that in a very clever and sweet way. And just, you know, as with any of these shows, hangs on the personality of Natasha Lyonne. If you enjoy her, I mean, Russian Doll, the first season of it, was one of my favorite TV shows of the past, I don't know, five, eight years. I absolutely loved that six episodes or whatever it was of TV. This isn't that. It's obviously a different structure, but it similarly relies on just the charm, the charisma, the rasping voice of of Natasha Leon. So if you like her and you like a... A mystery of the week, retro-style Columbo story. I think you'll dig this show.
2: Yeah, and Julia, we hear that clip and, like, immediately my tail starts wagging. Like, I just love the sound of Natasha Leone's voice, especially recently. that, That, like, experience weather, you know, rasp. It's, like, so human and easy to connect with. What do you make of this one?
3: I mean... Let me mount an argument that this is revolutionizing the future of TV. I'm not sure I believe it, but let me try. Why has it taken this long in the TV fancy streaming era for really creative people who are capable of our best work to just take aim at the procedural? The procedural is such a fun format. It's so satisfying. It's television's ultimate comfort food. I say this as someone who I think has literally watched every single episode ever aired of both Law & Order and Law & Order SVU. (laughs) Like, And we don't spend a ton of time talking about shows like that because the pleasures of them are not, it's not Andor. It's not The Last of Us. It's not trying to make a huge point about humankind. It's not trying to make you think differently about the world. It's not really even trying to make art. It's trying to use the tools of art to please you and entertain you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And somehow it's so refreshing to have these, not just talented, but like, I don't know, kind of chic artists, right? Like, kind of cool artists. They're both at these career peaks, right? Like, Natasha Leone has made just this incredible stuff. Ryan Johnson has shown that he can, like, tangle with the Star Wars verse, come out more successful than he was before, and then turn his attention to, like, making adults love murder mysteries again. Like, what a gift for these people to decide that at this moment of peak talent, when what they could say is we really want to recreate all quiet on the Western front with Natasha as Paul, like they could do that if they wanted, but they don't, they just want to have fun. Mm -hmm. It's so pleasant. It's so pleasant. And I think there's like plenty to dissect tonally in the show and why the tone is so pleasant right now and how we should feel about that. But I'm I'm ready for the procedural wave. Like uh, let's start casting. I want all my favorite actors to pair up with all my favorite director creators and make more procedurals. Like yes, this sounds great. This is delightful.
2: Right. And there was something about I mean Julia, I know you've said this many times that this the sonnet gives rise to creativity for being a shackle. Like right? it just girdles the form so tightly as if you obey its fundamental rules and there's something to be said for something that's miniaturized and yet delivers on the familiar rhythm something new and interesting. And I think this show does all of the above. Plus, it has Natasha Leone and that voice and that uh, charisma, that quiet, smoky charisma that's just hers alone at this point. So its I think it's very successfully delivered. Um, I think there's something very briefly to be said about, like, let's not lose the virtues of the streaming thing, the, the kind of peak tv golden age tv streaming tv um think of this briefly just as a business story right standalone tv was totally necessary because because you had to catch an episode when it was aired you couldn't count on everyone seeing every episode you couldn't really follow multi-episode arcs it wouldn't have lurked, worked in the Pre-streaming era, and secondly, syndication. Right, was where tons and tons and tons of money was made on the back end of these shows if they achieved a certain, you know, critical mass popularity-wise. And they were just—you could pop them out, you could catch one and then never watch it again, or catch a couple, and it didn't matter what order you were seeing them in. um I feel like I'm going to the hardware store for oranges, as they say, in a weird way. Like I feel Peacock, being an NBC product, kind of wants to have familiarity old shoe familiarity to it to draw in like a new, maybe a new demographic of uh, of watchers at the same time it wants the prestige of prestige tv and some there were moments where i was like I don't, you know is this all going to fit together i liked it but i'm not sure i'm going to return to it over and over and over again
0: I don't know. I guess they're just betting on the fact, Peacock is just betting on the fact that as Julia was saying, the kind of um prestige right now and the and the hipness of of the combination of Leon and Johnson will draw people in. Yeah. I don't I don't personally watch TV uh, in order to sustain some sort of you know narrative underneath the episodes. In other words, it didn't it didn't feel like a def- a fault in these episodes that it didn't supply that and didn't make me want to watch them less. In fact, I think this is very well suited to the weekly drop because, like I was saying, it's not a show you really want to binge. I did binge it in order to review it. And while I liked many of the episodes, actually, Number 5 is my favorite, and I want to put put that out there. If you if you aren't liking the show, try Number 5 just on its own. It happens to co-star as one of its um, its Love Boat Guest of the Week cameos, uh, a Law & Order veteran, S. Apatha-Merkerson, and also has Judith Light. It's a really great episode. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't really have an answer to that business question, but I feel like the show has been very warmly, critically Mm -hmm. received, and I have a feeling audiences will mainly respond to
3: it as well.
2: I I just want to refine that a tiny bit, Julia. I only meant that I'm out of certain viewing habits. and not sure how quickly I'm going to reacclimate myself to them. Law & Order was, eh, I just came back from a restaurant, 11 p.m. rolls around or midnight, and I've just watched The Daily Show and Boom, there's law and order. It's just old reliable. Like, I just kind of don't want to go to bed. I'll watch it, whatever. Yeah, that made sense. It didn't have to be a great show. It had to be familiar, comforting, you know, had those rhythms or whatever. And I'm not so sure that I would seek out in a streaming context this particular, I don't feel the itch and I won't go in search of the scratch.
3: I mean, I don't know, as someone who definitely feels the itch on a regular basis, I don't know how to relate to that. (laughs) You do you. But I will say, I, you know, to me, one of the things that has a lot to recommend it about this show and that is so fun and feels like such a gift is that it's not just that you have this cast of extraordinary actors showing up and really delivering in these little bit roles that get discarded episode by episode, but they're really well written and crafted and drawn. Mm. Like as someone who has seen, you know, 67,000 episodes of Law and Order, when you go and meet the bartender or the babysitter or the landlord or the garbage truck guy or, you know, all of the different characters you meet as the mystery gets unraveled, um, you know they're fine. They're sort of disposable performances. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're freakishly bad. They're you know it's kind of funny to track them. They're they're, they're really you know because you're producing twenty twenty to twenty four a year in the classic broadcast mode, you take an approach to to the scripts that that you know befits that economic structure, right? Whereas here, in part because of the kind of caliber of the cast and the fact that they're like having a lark doing this fun procedural and in part because of the setup of the show where she is a personality susser who can tell when people are lying Mm. and because of the Columbo structure where you know who did it and it's just a question of how is it going to get figured out or revealed all of that requires like a little bit of a closer character study of of all the people involved in every drama. And so you know, the all of these performances are give you a lot to watch. Like it isn't really just you know, the kind of endless stream of like dead body, mad landlord, oh god, it was the aunt. There was a will, dead body, <laughs> mad mad lawyer, oh god, there was a corporate struggle. It was the CEO, you know, like just it it's not The textures of it are really rewarding. And, you know, that is, I wonder if this show will endure because the, or if, you know, if they'll even keep doing it just because the particulars of the way in which Natasha Leone is charming. I love her wardrobe. She's dressed kind of like a Muppet at Burning Man Um, most of the time, like a lower key Burning Man, I guess. She's not wearing like steampunk goggles, but... She just looks like a desert freak in a great way. I also don't know since she's on the lamb why she keeps putting on new outfits. I find that confusing. but um the the pleasures of it feel very of the moment. like lot going on in the world. lot to think about. Let's just put all of our love and care and craft on something a little insular and fun.
0: I mean, I will just say that I personally hope it gets a second season. I suspect it will at least get a second season. Mm-hmm. And I also think that actors are going to be clawing to the top of the pile to appear on this. Because you're right, Julia. It's not, you know, the reason we laugh at guest spots on Law & Order because is because it's sort of like, look, Philip Seymour Hoffman playing, you know, whatever, random delinquent number three. Whereas here, every guest star gets a real chance to, you know, to do something to sink their teeth into an interesting role. And again, Merkerson in episode five. I love her. Um, so, yeah, please bring us another season.
2: It's poker face. It's on Peacock. Uh, check it out. Uh, we we all really liked it. Let's uh, let's move on.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple. on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at
2: evernorth.com wonder. Okay, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Dana, uh, I'm sure you have some there. What, uh, what do you got? Stephen,
0: our first item of business this week is just to tell you that we're still accepting applications for the role of our production assistant. We're hiring a new one if you didn't hear our announcement last week. This person will help us come up with ideas for the show. They join our planning call every week and they put together a research packet ahead of our recording so we know something about the topics we're talking about. This is a really important role to us, so we want to find the right person. It's been filled by some really talented people in the past who have gone on to very interesting jobs in journalism and elsewhere. This job requires a time commitment of about 10 to 12 hours a week. The starting wage is $20 an hour or possibly more based on your experience. And we are based in New York City, so we would love to hire someone who we can occasionally see in person in the studio, but remote candidates will also be considered. If you want to apply to be our production assistant, please send us a cover letter explaining why you want the job. And please also include two topics that you'd like to hear us discuss on a future episode. You can send this cover letter to culturegabfestassistant at gmail.com. Once again, that's culturegabfestassistant at gmail.com. We'll make sure to post that email address on our show page as well. And our second item of business, as always, is just to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to talk about sleepovers. There have been a couple of buzzy articles lately arguing about sleepovers for kids and their value, one in The Washington Post and one in The Atlantic, one pro and one con. The Washington Post one talks about the possible risks of sleepovers and things that could go wrong, might be dangerous about them, while The Atlantic piece basically defends them and argues that they're a crucial part of growing up. Uh, We talked about this a bit uh, on our planning call this week and decided that we had enough to say about it. There was enough juice there to have our own little argument or at least discussion about sleepovers. So that will be our Slate Plus segment for this week. So if you're a Slate Plus member, stick around for that conversation at the end of today's show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at Slate.com cultureplus Culture Plus. When you remember, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, and you'll get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. You'll never hit a paywall when you belong to Slate Plus, And, of course, you will be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are really important for Slate. So please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, Steve, what's next?
2: All right. Well, the German director, Edward Berger, has taken on a monumental task, as anyone approaching this classic novel, All Quiet on the Western Front, would have to. He. It, the challenge, I think, in doing this material, again, is to depict the First World War, a half-forgotten war, a war without all of the greatest generation mythologies of defeating fascism and therefore evil, um, in all of its gruesome, ignoble majesty, while also making us care. It's a very remote from our lived experience. To do so, and keying off of the original novel, uh, Berger's movie follows Paul Baumer, a 17-year-old boy filled with jingoistic zeal uh, and all the courage and naivete, therefore, of youth from his enlistment through the utter, pointless brutality of the trenches as it adds up to absolutely nothing, Okay. Well, we face this challenge occasionally when we do a foreign language movie. We we don't have an obvious clip to use. This movie is almost entirely in German. Uh, so we don't have any dialogue, but there are so many interesting sonic moments in this movie. This is from a haunting early scene where we see women repairing the uniforms of dead soldiers so they can be recycled for new recruits who themselves are just products of recycling so you're going to hear the sewing machines in this clip and also the abrasive score that recurs throughout the film let's let's have a listen Julia, let me let me do something slightly different. It's a movie, but I'll start with you because we started with Dana last time. Um you know, I, I'm, have I framed this wrong? I mean, it, World War I is the most important thing that never happened to us, right? It's outside of living memory, and yet it is arguably the greatest folly in human history. It killed 17 million people for really nothing. Um, and yet, law of unintended consequences, it kind of gave us modern life. It gave us the 20th century as, as we know it, and therefore the world in which we live. Uh, Berger had a real challenge here. How do you think he, he rose to it?
3: This movie is really hard to not watch it. it, It's weird. I mean, I think part of why we're doing this movie this week, we should note is that it it came in with nine Oscar nominations, best picture, best international picture, all of the technical awards, including score for that amazing sound, uh, world war one at the club. Um, and I can you know, so we were like, great. All right, let's dig in. Basically, all of Hollywood was sort of like, huh, wow. Okay. Everyone's been talking about Banshees. Everyone's been talking about everything everywhere all at once. The, the other two top nomination getters. And then this, you know, German language Netflix film full of like bleak trench shit. When we just had a bleak trench shit movie, you know, a couple of years ago with, um, with 1917, I don't know. I was not looking forward to it and it was a grueling watch, but it's it's a weirdly beautiful and watchable movie. Like I was I, I sort of understood upon watching it why it has a nomination in every single technical category. Um the the way in which often wordlessly, often just as you're watching soldiers tumble through incredibly bleak, purposeless tasks. Um, It creates little moments of drama and suspense and drive and and it carries your attention through pretty briskly for a movie that's two hours and 27 minutes long. I, I was really impressed by this movie's technical skill. So in terms of pure craft, I thought it was great. In terms of its purpose in revisiting it now, I was curious to think through what it would mean, what it might mean in modern Germany at this moment to revisit this story. Mm. Because, you know, I mean, we, there is a incredibly stupid war going on right now in Europe. Um, And of course this movie must've been conceived and made well before Putin invaded Ukraine, but, I don't know. I I, I I also had never seen either of the other adaptations, nor have I read the book. So I also didn't know how the story ended, which I won't divulge here. Um, but I had the perhaps amusing um, experience of being surprised by this age old text. Uh, but I'm so curious to hear what you guys thought of it.
2: Yeah, Dana, as Julia says, uh, nominated to the skies every major category. Do you think deservedly? What would you make of it?
0: I mean I agree with Julia that on the craft level it really is extraordinary. It made me wish that I had seen it in a theater because it really is a big screen spectacle that does a lot of starkly beautiful, you know, ironically beautiful things with the um with the equipment of war. You know, there's a recurring image of Uh, I guess it's just a a bomb dropping from a plane, right? But there's this sort of um, almost comet-like light in the sky that the Mm -hmm. soldiers look up and witness from the trenches. And it's all shot in this very beautiful way that yet doesn't seem aestheticized. I don't know if you guys saw 1917, the Sam Mendes film from 2019, but... That was my main critique of 1917. It is also a kind of miracle of craft. And I think I said this in my review of 1917, but as beautifully done as it was on a technical level, it felt a little bit like a video game in Mm -hmm. a way that felt sort of unethical, you know, that that felt somehow wrong. And this movie doesn't have that fault. It manages to, you know, create this sort of beautiful spectacle of war without it being beautified and with it being fully, you know, cognizant of the ugliness of war. In fact, obsessed with showing us that ugliness over and over again. Uh, but there were some things about it that deviate from the novel and also from the 1930, you know, best picture winning um, early sound adaptation of the novel that I don't think really belonged there. And they were a pretty major part of the movie. Uh and that is the um, the cutting back to the to the diplomats and the generals and the guys in boardrooms that are trying to negotiate the armistice as we see the young men fighting out in the in the trenches and I just I'm not sure that that although that all seemed exquisitely well-researched. And as my viewing companion observed, it was like the the weft and weave of the fabrics of everyone's uniforms seemed like it had just been researched to the nines. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was from, a again, point of view of production design and, you know, just historical detail was extraordinary. But I didn't think that added dramatically very much to the movie at all. For one thing, those characters were not real characters, like guy with a bushy mustache, you know, shaking his fist in a boardroom about war. We didn't know who they were. And they just represented an ideology, essentially the ideology of you know war for war's sake and kind of the inability to negotiate peace. And I don't know, I guess I just felt that that contrast was really obvious and we know, we get it. You know, We get that there is a vast distance between the guys that are drinking fine wines in a train car somewhere arguing about the war and the boys in the trenches. And I just kind of wanted mm-hmm. to stay with the boys in the trenches.
2: Right, I, I, I concur completely. I thought that worked least well in the movie. What I thought worked, It's a bravura piece of cinema making uh, and it deserves its nomination. Julia, I had exactly the same response before I pressed play. I thought, not really sure other than the nominations why I would be interested in this. And within 30 seconds, I was riveted and riveted pretty much to the end. Um, I thought what worked absolutely best within all, I mean, other than the just sheer movie making um, uh, virtuosity of it was the camaraderie of this small cohort of i think their classmates um who are serving together uh at the center of which is paul but then uh, he develops a friendship with someone who wasn't who's a little older and is in fact uh, working class and illiterate named uh cat his nickname is cat i thought that performance was wonderful i thought their friendship was wonderful it was the most meaningful part of the movie in some sense and they're they're twinned fate is what I cared about most deeply. Um, one thing I would say is that and this is a point it turns out Jamel Bowie made really well and I, I I had read this when I was in like seventh grade, and there was one thing I remembered about the whole book which was that central to it and central to its point is how at those moments where he takes leave from the front and goes home, he finds himself completely alienated from his own family, his own teachers, that that, that it, it wasn't the discrepancy between a leadership class, which is not depicted in the novel. None of that is from the original book. Um, but the discrepancy between the person who actually experiences the trenches and um, the Entire rest of German society, which is still talking in the same pieties that got everyone into the mess in the first place, and it just it and that is a central experience of modernity. It creates, you could argue, modern art and modern literature. The total obli- obliterating of piety and a certain kind of received highfalutin language in Victorian diction by experience, specifically the experience of the trenches. And that's missing from this. You never see him return to civilian life. And um, I kept thinking an anti-war movie, I mean, this is considered to be the greatest anti-war text of all time, or certainly one of them, but an anti-war movie needs a war. And our sense of what an anti-war movie is got completely remade by the Vietnam War, because Vietnam remade our sense of what war is. War is different in some ways now than it was then. And so the central force of this initial document doesn't really have much of a place in here you could certainly interpret it in light of the ukrainian war it should certainly expand your sympathies for the people who i'm sure fighting the war those people are sick of the pieties behind it on both sides but i just i that was too abstract too given the brutality of of the film i don't know i i i i wasn't sure always why i was watching it other than the power of the filmmaking.
0: Yeah, I mean I think my critique of this movie if I had to have one overarching one would be why this movie now, you know, and what what does it have to say or bring to the war genre that's new. I mean, as you say the novel, the novel this is based on by Eric Marie Remark was I mean, not only an extremely successful novel at the time, right? But mm-hmm. it was a really important novel in literary history, because it was, in a way, one of the first war memoirs. I mean, it's a fictionalized version, but yeah. he was a veteran of World War I. And, uh, and the whole genre of, you know, writing about one's actual experience in the war, which is almost always going to be an anti-war text, right? Because yes. who is coming back with a story that's inspirational from that experience, right, um, was begun by this. So I guess if you're German, there's an answer to that question that I can't really grasp as, as an American viewer, which is that this is a German language text about a German war, right, from the, the century in which there were these two, you know, vastly destructive wars that began because of choices that country's leadership made. And so this must—and it's the first German language adaptation of that novel. So this has to land very differently there. From some of the research we did, it seems like not every critic there has has loved the movie and, uh, and that they—some of them on ideological grounds have— have objected to you know the way it presents the war um so maybe we're not the right people to answer that question i think that that would be if this were to win a bunch of oscars i think that would be my one qualm about it not that it's not a deserving film not that it's not made with you know care and and love and and a lot of attention to um to detail and to to good storytelling but what does this movie have to bring to us now that we haven't already seen you know for decades and decades in anti-war films
3: Yeah, Dana, the question of why now is so interesting to me. And I I felt myself wanting to understand the German politics, I was struck by the argument that, you know, instead of zooming out to see how alienated he is from home, and what what even matters what the political machinations are, we spend the time with these poignant bureaucrats. Um, You know, I, I wonder if it has something to do with the futility like the actual the actual inability to accomplish anything that that is striking like i feel like the vietnam narrative is like we're all doing all this stuff and it's so stupid and pointless but you 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 know you can denude the jungle and use you know like the the action of vietnam movies is not um it's self nihilistic right like they do stuff over there it's just all for no reason Whereas the actual futility of trench warfare and the combat itself being so purposeless, like is that what's resonating with us now? Help help me out. Why are why are we looking back at this war right now?
2: Let me hazard an answer, Julia, as best I can, which is that, you know, unintentionally this movie gives us some kind of an explanation for the to put it mildly, equivocal response of the Germans to the Ukrainian war. Their reluctance to step in to supply uh, arms or financial support to the degree the other NATO, major NATO allies are. It's relative reticence in condemning Putin. I think it has to do with way more than just a dependency on the fossil fuels of Russia. I think this movie helps explain why after two brutal world wars, and sort of century-defining world wars, both lost by Germany. There's a streak of anti-piety and anti-charisma that runs through, especially the reunited Germany, um, that conduces to a degree of pacifism. um, I think you feel when you go there, the entire country is devoted in some sense uh, to reckoning and historical memory and not repeating the mistakes of the past. And so... I, of course it couldn't have been in response to the Ukrainian war, but it's out of the same zeitgeist that gives us this, um, I think in some ways, quite frustrating reluctance in the face of the Ukrainian conflict to take clear sides uh, and and repeat pieties that I regard to be true, that we're fighting global, essentially on our behalf, Zelensky and the Ukrainians are fighting global illiberalism um, in ways that are utterly heroic but it is so this movie if nothing else is a reminder that it is so fucking easy for me to sit here and say that that at the actual level of boots on the ground exactly these experiences or their equivalents are happening every single day and i don't have to experience that terror and so to the extent that one remakes a movie like this Maybe it should be remade every ten years. It's a salutary reminder. Some other, often young, and increasingly in the modern world, socially and financially disenfranchised person acts as our surrogate.
0: Yeah, maybe every generation needs this movie yeah. again. Right? I mean, and it's worthy of noting in that context that the book was banned by the Nazis, Eric Maria yeah. m- Remarque's novel. Burnt, so yeah. yeah, so reading it now in, in Germany, which I gather all students do, you know, as many students mm. do here in the U.S., is a way of, of reclaiming a history that was lost.
1: Mm. Okay,
2: the movie is All Quiet on the Western Front. It's on Netflix. It's very easy to see and I think really worth seeking out. Okay, let's move on.
1: Sick of being upsold at gyms? My God!
2: All right. Well, the uh, author Emily Sundberg has written a piece for Grub Street that really caught our eye. It's about a phenomenon dubbed shoppy shops. And uh, let me quote someone that she quotes because it captures it really well. We need a new term for, quote, Internet-based small businesses that still use global supply infrastructure. As Sundberg says, this is a friend of her speaking, a culture writer who also tells Emily Sundberg, we know these minimalist-ish generic aesthetics are not connected to any true local origin, but we see them as indicative of some kind of authenticity. My current thought is that they don't feel local to a place, but instead they feel local to the Internet, which is, after all, where we all live. And someone else in the course of the piece dubs these shoppy shops. Julia, what'd you make of uh, both the piece and the phenomenon it's describing?
3: Oh, it's so satisfying when a piece of culture reporting puts its finger on something you've observed in the world and um, haven't even quite noticed yourself noticing. It's one of my favorite types of reporting, and this piece is a real coup of that, uh, of sort of noting that more and more at the little coffee shop or the plant store or the you know place that you do still go to in a bricks and mortar sense the same sets of things show up particular soaps particular tinned fish particular attractively designed but available everywhere but designed as though they aren't available everywhere bottles of olive oil um And what the piece reveals is that there is this kind of internet back end for people who want to put beautiful little dry goods in their stores. The piece notes that a lot of people use the word provisions. um, So that essentially they can go on a big online database and click up on a wholesaler's version of Amazon, the things that they can put in their mom and pop shops to keep you from feeling like you just buy things at Amazon. Um, And it's so... I'm not sure that that reveal is actually shocking. Like, you know, I, I don't know how we think the purveyors of little shops found the cute things in their stores before. Did they all go actually like forage them in the bushes of local craftsmen? Maybe, but you know, that like wh- wholesaling has always been a business. Um, but I think it's such a smart piece about the aesthetics of consumption and what we want to feel when we're buying something and how you know capitalism is always a step of a step ahead of us in figuring out how to offer us consumer experiences that that are the ones we want to have at any given moment what did you guys make of this piece do you you live in a, in the land of the shoppy shops many of the shoppy shops are described are are brooklyn shoppy shops did this hatch a ping of recognition for you guys
0: I think it did less for me for the very dorky reason that I do almost all my food shopping at the food co-op, which Steve just recently became a member of, too. And after I put in that, you know, whatever it is, three hours of work every six weeks, I'm damn well going to shop there and get some value from it. So I don't think I wander into the places that have these kind of uh, small washed, as the piece says, you know, these 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 items that are made to look as if they come from small businesses when they're actually part of some mm-hmm. big supply chain. I mean, the packaging that she describes, I, rec- I recognize perfectly. And uh, it's a really lively piece to read for that reason, just the way she describes, you know, the look of these, of these objects. You know, you certainly see them everywhere. And, you know, the sudden wave for tinned fish that swept the nation in the last couple, I don't know, years or so, she kind of puts her finger on the um, the trendiness of those kinds of things, you know, those items that a desire is sort of created artificially for them on the internet, which I do completely recognize, even if I'm probably not wandering into the shops mm. that sell them.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, so a couple different things. First of all, just chapeau, right? Like the capitalism's ability to satisfy what feel like deep needs, but in fact are themselves only cravings produced by capitalism is just endlessly innovative. And one of the you know sides of the street that it's been working for at least the last 20, 30 years is authenticity. Um, I, as someone who moved to a very small community filled with small producers, um, I think there is a genuine version of this. And I don't think we should go so Warhol and Pomo that we think everything is always branding, therefore plus ça change. I hate that argument. I just don't think it's real. Um, I think some things produced at a more handcrafted level are in some obvious way better. I mean, as someone who personally knows people who started incredibly popular, successful businesses at a tiny, at a micro scale, right, like the Suarez Brewery up where I live, like They have decided not to grow. They can't make what they make at scale. They can get by and do well but not get rich at the level that they're at currently. And they, as of now at least, you know, refuse to go to the next level. And so I think, Julia, I guess I would throw it back and just say, listen— I have no problem. Certain things probably are produced so much more efficiently at scale and with no appreciable loss of quality. You know, it, it, to the extent that there's any justice in the this way of doing things, it's the radically lowered cost of goods and therefore their accessibility to a much, there is an economic democracy behind production at scale in a way. So, you know, that's a freedom I think we should revel in and take advantage of where appropriate. But then don't fake, like, don't fake it. Like, don't play me like a sucker because then I will backlash against it. And secondly, don't tell me this lie that in some instances there's no difference between, you know, Budweiser and, like, the microbrewery, you know, the farm microbrewery in Vermont that blah, 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 like, fill in the blank. I don't know. Am no,
3: I... you're right, you're right, you're right. I I, I I should not be quite so cynical about it in in sniffing a bit at the reveal that there is a like place where shop owners can go to find what goods are available wholesale like there have been some centralized places for that but the other you're you're right that the other thing this piece highlights and that's part of what makes it such an interesting sticky good piece of journalism is that there's a couple of interesting trends captured in it is sort of pretty big businesses pretending to be small businesses in the, through their aesthetics, right? And sort of um, trying to grow but retain the feeling of, like, the direct-to-consumer relationship um, and the aesthetics of, like, oh, I just happened to find this beautiful little company that makes these sweet little tin fish with the pretty picture on the mm-hmm. front, Um The other trend that this piece touches on, and again, it's just like a really dense morsel that you should go read, is the idea that a lot of us are now getting pushed products on Instagram and other social platforms, and there's a certain kind of vertigo of encountering those direct-to-consumer brands without the stamp of approval of a local seller or curator or somebody you trust saying things actually good. Like, I feel like I have this all the time. I'll see like a swimsuit or a skirt or whatever and just be like, is this real? Like, is this a real, is this a real company that makes real stuff that I might really want? Or is this like a dumb Instagram charade where the shirt's going to be made out of cardboard or the, the, the whole thing is just a scam to like get me to pay money for a brand I have no relationship or trust
0: in? I mean, I guess there's something to be said for just the existence of brick-and-mortar stores continuing, right? It kind of goes to the argument we're always having about theatrical screenings of movies versus watching them digitally. We would all be sad if movie theaters didn't exist anymore, even if we don't go to them as much as we used to. And it's the same thing with stores. I'd rather walk into a small, washed store and buy some cute, cliched products that I can, as you say, Julia, at least hold and kind of experience and assume that somebody has has, uh, filtered in some way. Then, you know, order a dress off Instagram, as I have stupidly done before, and then have it arrive as this flimsy thing that's more of a see-through shirt <laughs> that you're mm-hmm. never going to actually don.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. Like, maybe this is good news, right? Like, wouldn't you rather have a dozen shoppy shops in your neighborhood than a dozen, like, ATM machines, which was the prior highest and best use discovered by capitalism of, like, Brooklyn real estate, right? Like, so what if they all sell one particular brand of Internet olive oil. Like, I don't know. That's kind of cute. That seems like more fun to walk past than the ATM. But wait a second, um, though. And wait, wait, wait. Just let me. Just, just yeah. let me finish. Like I, I guess if like what if what the if machine of venture capitalism has discovered is that people want to go to stores near them to buy things. Like that's good. Like I'm happy for that. That feels like progress in the like, never mind, stores be dead, you'll buy it all on Amazon, the food will come in the tube from the sky. (laughs) Like, it seems like, uh, I don't know, humanity prevailing in some fashion.
2: Okay, so you're laying out three choices, the Amazon, the giant tube in the sky, ATMs, or shoppy shops. Those are not the choices. The choices are... Uh, you know, rents that aren't out of control. So actual mom and pop operations can open up in neighborhoods and the money doesn't flow to a bunch of private equity dickheads. It's actually going to the people who used their highly specific creative energies and daring do as actual entrepreneurs, not fake balance sheet entrepreneurs, um, looking for a quick buck to make something that might actually turn into a lasting local institution, right? Like, I think people move to New York City because of more for like like things that are part of the deep fabric of a community, not some shoppy shop that's a, a pop-up designed to make some, you know... You know the latest iteration of the financial, you know, jerk rich. Anyway,
0: well, when you put it that well, way, I, don't think, but, <laughs> I start but, to, I start to, Steve's winning me over. I'm thinking of Blank Street Coffee, which this article doesn't mention, <sighs> but which is this scourge that's popped up terrible. all around New York. It's like awful a, coffee. A fake small business. I haven't had it. I've not it's walked into awful one, but coffee.
2: Right. That's, the, but freaking that's, a, that's the example
0: of a VC yeah. startup that is really kind of, I don't know, just homogenizing neighborhoods.
2: And fine. People don't make right, the but, difference. But, it's, go but, enjoy it. But
3: the venture capitalists in this story don't own the shops. The venture capitalists own some of the brands available in the shops and the back end that the shopkeepers can use to put cute provisions next to the coffee counter in uh-huh. their shops.
2: Yeah. Spoiler <laughs> alert. The next thing they're going to do is buy these fricking things the the shoppy shops sure, themselves
3: but it's just it's a little bit more complicated than that
2: all right this is one of those ones we'll throw to you guys just email us what you think about shoppy shops uh and also who's right me or julia um welcome to the shoppy shop is the article it's in grub street and it's by emily sunberg let's move on
1: But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets.
2: All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you uh, what do you have this week?
1: Uh, I
0: feel like my endorsements are increasingly coming from my thespian child, who consumes so much interesting culture and is always sending me to interesting things now. Uh, and this week, I am inspired by her to refer everyone to an hour-long TV documentary called Kiss Me Petruchio from 1981. It is the story of—it's the backstage documentary about Meryl Streep and Raul Julia doing Taming of the Shrew a- in Shakespeare in the Park in 1981. So, mm. you know, there was just somebody following them around as they were getting their costumes and learning their lines and getting the show together. I believe you can also watch a filmed version of their version of Taming of the Shrew, but this is more the making of. It's just an hour long and it's just so much fun to watch young Meryl Streep and young Raul Julia, you know, direct to camera talking about their interpretation of this play. They talk about the feminist problems with the play because, of course, Taming of the Shrew is all about, you know, essentially how... Petruchio has to abuse his wife to get her to obey and Meryl Streep has some very interesting stuff to say about that. But mainly, I mean, if you're just a theater nerd and you want to see things like close ups on the costume makers sewing the flowers onto the dress. I mean, it's just it's such a juicy theater nerd watch. So it's called Kiss Me Petruchio. It is all over the place. I believe that she found it on Amazon. It might be on Netflix as well. But I think if you Google it, you'll have no trouble finding it. Kiss Me Petruchio from
2: 1981. That sounds amazing. Oh, man. Uh, all right, yeah. Julia, what do you have?
0: Okay, well, I know we just talked about The Last of Us
3: a couple weeks ago. I had not yet seen the third episode. And as if, if you're following on Twitter or following the TV cultureverse at all, you will have heard that the third episode of The Last of Us is an absolute stunner of a love story. It it sort of departs from our main characters and depicts the world of two men played by Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett and how they navigate this post-apocalyptic landscape and eventually intersect with with our main characters and it's just An incredibly beautiful love story that's incredibly well acted and made and made me feel 100% on board the rest of this show and wherever it's going to take us, even if the rest of it is literally just like pop up zombies for seven more episodes. Like I have to watch the rest of the show to see what it does. It it just if you if you have not joined this journey, you've got to go do it. And my favorite tweet about this that went viral on Sunday night after it aired was from a tweeter who goes by Zach Silverberg? who wrote, The Last of Us writers were like, hey, Joel needs a car. What if we write the most touching and heartbreaking hour of television in the world? <laughs> Which is basically the plot of the episode. So, um, yeah, if you were not convinced by last week's conversation to get on board The Last of Us train, and you were alarmed by the zombie talk, at least watch the first three episodes, because this third episode is, is, is a must-see.
2: Oh, man. Yeah, no, no. I missed that episode of our show due to covid so i haven't seen last of us yet so now i'm i'm all in uh thanks for that julia um all right so i i couldn't let the death of tom verlaine go unremarked um to the extent verlaine had a unfortunate fate as a musician it was only that he came up next to the talking heads his band television came up right next to, he was p- peer band to Talking Heads, Ramones, Blondie, um, you know, just all of whom went on to much, much bigger success than Verlaine's band television. But, you know, I would say the critical consensus is not only every bit as good, but, you know, they, I mean, you know, Marky Moon is, is the perfect rock and roll record. It's one of the best rock albums ever made. Verlaine just died, I think about the age of 73 and his, uh, Music was so hard to class in a way because it was obviously it had this punk aura to it. It Clearly they were a CBGB's band in some ways all the way. But at the same time, his and and his Richard Lloyd, the other guitarist, these beautiful, almost Bach-like guitar uh, duets, basically harmonized or counterpointed, sometimes one, sometimes the other guitar lines, uh, interspersed in the songs. Were so they were just intricate, really haunting, Um, you know, very musical for a for a punk band. Just rest in peace, Tom Verlaine. I mean, really created one of the great, great bands of all time. Uh, The albums "Adventure" and "Marquee Moon" are both absolute stone cold masterpieces. And then, super quickly, a discovery: Skeeter Davis. Anybody? Uh, pop country icon, really, or, you know, sort of yeah, I mean, sort of pop music country icon from, I'm gonna say, 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe, I mean, 50s, 60s probably. Um, Love Skeeter Davis, it turns out, sort of half-forgotten, maybe too poppy for country, too country for pop. Uh, And she made one cut, one song with her sister, at least one song with her sisters uh, under the name The Davis Sisters. I forgot more than you'll ever know about him. was such a great Bye. song oh my god check Bye. it out You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com/slash culturefest. And you can email us if We Love It at CultureFest at Slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderama. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.